You've read the story of the prince and the pauper, haven't you? Well, I don't know if Sheikh Mohammed would switch places with Uriah St. Louis, but the little trainer from Trinidad got to play ruler for a day. Now at the Breeders' Cup, will his horse, discreet lover, keep St. Louis in the palace? Plus, a farewell to one of the quirkiest champion horses of recent memory, a horse that repeatedly refused to leave the starting gate. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll silent. And they're off. It's a move to the top of the straight. It's a hit-bombing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Why do we watch sports? We watch it for the laundry, to see if our teams wearing the logos of our hometowns will defend our honor in friendly battle. Maybe even more than that, we watch it for the people, all kinds of people, men, women, rich, poor, all trying to achieve, to reach their goals, to win. And when we watch and study people, we always want to have someone to root for and someone to root against. Well, in the recent Jockey Club Gold Cup, I don't know how many people were really rooting for owner and trainer Uriah St. Louis and his 45-to-1 long shot, discreet lover. I mean, there was some royalty in the Gold Cup. Mendelssohn, star colt from the Boston Red Sox of horse racing, Coolmore of Ireland... Coolmore has more graded stakes wins than Kim Kardashian has Twitter followers. Thunder Snow, winner of the Dubai World Cup for the New York Yankees of racing. Sheikh Mohammed of Dubai's Good Dolphin Racing. And Diversify, the Whitney Handicap winner. Then there was little Uriah St. Louis and discreet lover, whom he bought for $10,000, less than it would cost you to buy many used cars. How could they compete with this regal group in one of the most prestigious races in the country? And they're into the stretch, and Diversify has been put to the whip. The main threats are coming. Mendelssohn and Thunderstone and Discreet Image is trying too. On the far outside, they're into the final furlong. Thunderstone has taken the lead. Discreet Image is coming. Mendelssohn is on the inside. Diversify is given way. Here comes the finish. It is going to be a photo finish. And I think it was Discreet Lover. Manny Franco waves his whip in victory in the Jockey Club Gold Cup. Instead of calling Uriah St. Louis a prince, you might have been calling him Don Quixote. He had entered discreet lover in 30 stakes races before the Gold Cup. The horse had had one single graded stakes win over the winter in New York, the Excelsior at Aqueduct, which was St. Louis's only graded stakes win ever in a 30-year career as an owner and trainer. Before the Gold Cup, that is. Yet there they were, kings for a day after defeating the sport's true royalty. Now they get to try again, since a victory in the Gold Cup guarantees them an all-expenses-paid berth in the $6 million Breeders' Cup Classic at Churchill Downs on November 3rd. 
With a little time between those races to catch his breath, owner-trainer Uriah St. Louis has a couple of seconds to catch up with us in person here on In The Gate. How do you feel now that you've had some time to let that win sink in? From day one, I trust the horse. I believe in the horse. And the horse, he, he just runs. He's a runner. Last year, we were running against a top-notch horse in Gun Runner. I didn't think it had much horses better than Gun Runner. So when Gun Runner retired, I thought we had a great opportunity to move up. Because he was beating us 14 lengths, but the rest of the field was beating us 3-4 lengths. That's all. So I say, with Gun Runner out of the picture, take away 10 lengths from there. I'm right in the, the mix with the rest of the horses. So we came back. We ran in a few little stakes after we ran with Gun Runner. Then we came back and we run in the Excelsior. We win that. We thought it was too close to run right back in the Charleston Classic, but it was 1.2 million and they were giving you 25,000 to show up. So I'm like, it's close, but it's only a six or seven horse field. Take the chance. If he likes that racetrack, we'll be great. He didn't like it. So then we had a month after that. Every race was a month away. So we ran in the Pimlico Special. We got beaten six lengths. Come back, we ran in the Met Lion. I think we got beaten six or eight lengths again. Then we came back, we ran in the Suburban. We got beaten eight lengths, but we got into trouble. We were squeezed on the rail. But you don't get frustrated when you see your horse being beaten by six, seven, eight lengths? No, because if you're in this business, six, seven, eight lengths, it might sound like a lot. But if you have a good enough horse, it could reduce it and it could reduce it quick. Because the next, we came back and we run into Whitney and we get beaten four and a half lengths and we were flying. Then we went and we decided to change statics and stay close. And that was no good in the Woodward. He didn't like that at all. He just like, you guys crazy. And he came back. He was frustrated, the horse, because he was like, wow, what is these guys doing? I always break and take a run and then they try to keep me close. So we decide... The Jockey Club Gold Cup, we're going to do the same thing, just take him back. And it worked out perfect because those horses went suicidal up front and we were just taken back. And I said, I told my wife and my son, I said, if he's within five lengths of them at the top of the stretch, he'll run over them. And exactly that's what happened. At the top of the stretch, when I saw him swing outside, I said, all he had to do is pop his switch lead and you're gone. And he did. The greatest win ever. I mean, we're still pinching ourselves. It's so good. Because nobody believed him but my wife, my son, my daughter, and myself. And I have a part, a friend, she was there, the godmother. She was there. They, we were the honest people and the jockey. Manny believed in that horse. Well, we know how your family felt about it. I love him. He is such an awesome horse. He's a great one with him. He's a great one with I'm just so proud. I'm so, so proud of this horse. He tries so hard all the time. He deserves it. He deserves this. My father deserves this. He works so hard. I'm so happy. Oh, my goodness. I am so happy. Ah. What did you do after the race? We got him cleaned up and everything else. We came home. We brought him home that night. And everybody went to bed. <laughs> That's it? That's it. The next day we celebrate because it was, we got home about 10 o'clock that night and we know we had a, you still had, the rest of the business still have to run. So you come back and you take care of the rest of the horses and 
the next night we went out to dinner and we did stuff because we had more time and we were at home. Can you put into perspective from a financial standpoint what that win means to you? Well, he, he, he helped us out a lot, but all year he's been doing that. And we have a few other horses that's making some money. So it was it's great as money they could put aside, but he's just one of those horses that if you could ever have two of them, it's the dream horse. Now, I mean, as you know, it obviously costs quite a bit of money to enter these big stakes races. And this is your money you have to put up. You're not Coolmore. You're not Godolphin. And you know you're coming in as a long shot in these races like we talked about before. Our friend Bobby Halt of the New York Hot List points out that eight times Discreet Lover went off at odds between 20 to 1 and 49 to 1 in these stakes races. He went off at 79 to 1 in the Metropolitan Handicap and finished fourth. Now, obviously, that paid off. What made you keep coming back in these big races with such a long shot when you can't afford to fail and it's just money? Well, you have to believe in the horse, and we believed in the horse. The whole family believed in the horse, and we said, if you... You had to put up or shut up. So we we liked the horse that much. We know he was good enough. And I said, if he lose, it's going to cost us 20 grand. In the Metman, I think it was 19800 to between the nomination, the entry, and the starter fee. But we knew he could run one, two, three, four, five, six. And I said, if you, I asked my wife, I said, she said, go ahead, Fred, if you think so. And we went right ahead and did it. He never let us down. So, we we always take the chance. And uh, Woodward, it cost us, I think, 11500 or something. We lost that. But every other race, he brought home a nice check. 100000 80000 120 You know, he's always bringing home something. Good. So he didn't owe us nothing. So if we had to put it, I mean, I'm a chance taker anyway. I'm, as, if that was my horse, there's no way I could do that. And no owner would let me do that kind of crazy stuff. First thing they'll be like, whoa, no, you keep throwing away the money. You know, even if they're making money, they don't want to take the chance. But it's my own horse. I'm 60 years of age. This might be my only opportunity to do it. So I say, look, the kids is growing up, both of them finished college, and take a chance. Trainer Uriah St. Louis joining us here on In the Gate. He'll send out the Jockey Club Gold Cup winner, Discreet Lover, to try to pull off an encore in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Now, how is he doing since you said that he suffered muscle cramps after the race? He's doing fantastic. He breathes Wednesday, the tent for the state vet, and then he breathes again. I just breathe him just a condition work, just to keep him happy. Is he off the vet's list? Yes, he's off the vet's list. When he breathes for the state vet, he was off the vet list then. Was racing in your childhood in Trinidad? I was about five years of age. My oldest sister, she passed away now. She took us to the, took a bunch of us to the races. I was about five, six years of age and I saw a gray horse and I fell in love with a gray horse. And since that day, I can't get it out of my blood. <laughs> it's just been, I came to the United States in 73. And I decided I was going, to, when I got to high school, I was in East New York Vocational Technical High School, which is about a mile and a half, two miles from Aqueduct. And I used to, as soon as class is up and we start, I was on the track team, I would run to Aqueduct, make a late daily double, or bet something, and then 
one thing after the other, end up getting involved in horse racing. Control group and Harlan Punch turn for home together. Zanotti is under pressure on the inside and is back running in third backside of the moon. Discreet Lover trying to mount a charge on the far outside with a furlong to run. It's still wide open here. Harlan Punch, Zanotti coming back. Discreet Lover on the far outside coming the best. Control group is fourth. Backside of the moon. They're coming down to the line and it is Discreet Lover. Discreet Lover and Manny Franco win the Excelsior by two and a half lengths over Zanotti. Will the Breeders' Cup be it for Discreet Lover? Yes, that's his last race. I'm going to run him in the Breeders' Cup, and then we're going to try to syndicate him as a stud and go from there. But he did he did a wonderful for us, so in no way, after this, this is enough, 45 races. That will be his 45th race. What will it be like? Obviously, financially, it's a windfall, but emotionally, when he's not in your barn anymore, what's that going to be like? Well, it's it's a business, so as soon as he leaves, you got to try to replace him. It'll be hard to replace, but you got to try to replace him. And you know, we'll still have him in our heart, and we'll so long as wherever he's at, we'll go visit him. And he's one of them wonderful horses. We'll always have a soft spot in my heart, and every place is. And we certainly wish you the best of luck on November the 3rd in Kentucky. Thank you so much for a few minutes, sir. No problem. Thank you. We're going to take a short break here on this edition of In the Gate. But when we come back, a farewell to one of the quirkiest champion horses of recent memory after the break. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. It's the question every athlete needs to answer at some point. When will you know it's over? In the case of a horse, it's when is he telling you it's over? Chautauqua was one of the most accomplished horses in Australian racing, a six-time Group 1 winner who bagged more than $6 million U.S. in his racing career. Chautauqua still last. English goes after Fell Swoop. Russian Revolution's run his race further back to Voodoo Lad. It's English and Fell Swoop fighting it out. Chautauqua very late. It's English a half length in front. Can he do it? Chautauqua, he's flying. Yes, there's history. Chautauqua makes it three in a row. That is unbelievable. He got up to beat English and Fell Swoop. Chautauqua won the Group 1 T.J. Smith stakes for three straight years, 2015, 16, and 17. He was considered a worthy challenger to the mighty mayor, Winks. He was being pointed for the recently run Everest, a race similar to the Pegasus World Cup where the participating owners put up the entire purse. But now, Chautauqua is eight years old, well into middle age for a horse, And he's become more well-known recently, not for crossing the wire first, but for refusing to leave the gate altogether. Chautauqua, once again, just standing there, motionless, but a little bit better, if anything, today, Duff, because normally he stands and he stays there for a lot longer. He actually jumped, albeit very late. He's a great thinker, is the mighty Chautauqua. And we're about to find out the future of the modern-day Burma of Australian racing, Chautauqua. Here we go. And he stood there. He didn't come out. He refuses to leave the barrier. Tommy Berry has given up on him. Chautauqua is still in the gates. He has refused to come out. Eight different times the connections of Chautauqua entered him in races, only to see him either leave the stall very slowly or, in many cases, 
Not at all. The stewards of Racing New South Wales, the governing body of horse racing in the Sydney and Melbourne areas, eventually banned the horse in August from all races and trials. The connections of Chautauqua tried to have the ban lifted, and the horse broke well in a trial run in late September, but shortly after, he stayed in his starting stall once again, and so the champion sprinter was not part of the second annual Everest event. What can horsemen learn from what happened with Chautauqua? To help with that question, we welcome his regular rider, Tommy Berry, here to win the gate. Let's first put Chautauqua's career into some perspective. How good was he? Yeah, look, he's probably one of the best horses I've put my leg over. He's had an incredible turn of foot. He could sustain a run from a good six to eight hundred metres, which probably made him as good as he was. But he ran against the best sprinters in Australia and went overseas and competed in Hong Kong as well. And close to the end of his career was rated as the best sprinter in the world. So I think that shows how good he was. Was there any thought to bringing Chautauqua to take on Europeans or Americans? Yeah, look, there, there was. I think after Hong Kong, he was meant to go to England and, and run on there. You know, I might have been in the Queen Anne, but he didn't pull up overly well after that run. Obviously, the humidity and the heat uh, of that time of year in Hong Kong when he did win took a little bit out of him, so they decided to, to take him back home to Australia. Oh, it's too bad he wasn't at the Queen Anne, because I was at the Queen Anne. It would have been incredible to see him there. When did you yeah. start to notice a change in the horse, his behavior? Well, I wasn't here for that, because I was in Hong Kong for 12 months at the time he started um, not jumping. So I sort of missed a, a fair, probably six months of um, him, him not jumping at the start. So I didn't really notice a change in him until I'd actually got back and when I first came back to ride him, uh, he actually jumped at Flemington on that day, and it wasn't until the next time he didn't jump. But he was still the same horse, very quirky, very unusual. He, he was very full of himself, but just at, at the time of the, the gates opening, decided it, he didn't want to go. Well, I mean, you saw that happen on video, I would imagine. What did you think when you saw that happen? Yeah, I was sort of... When he first did it, I, I had a bit of a laugh because, you know, it was, that's Chautauqua. You know, he's always been a strange sort of a horse and he's always done what he wants to do on his terms, you know, and that's why he's always so far back in the field and, and comes with that amazing burst because that's where he wants to be in a race. And it just showed that day that even the first time he didn't want to jump that he didn't feel like doing it today. So, but then obviously it became a bit more of a habit, so it became a bit more serious and a bit more frustrating. And it was unfortunate we couldn't get him back to the races. Did anyone bring up the idea that maybe Chautauqua didn't want to be a racehorse anymore? Well, I don't really think it sort of came into our minds. Back at the stable, he was in a great frame of mind. He was working really well on the track. Um, he was jumping out back at home quite fine. <clears throat> on the odd occasion, he did jump out of the barriers and, and, and troll quite well. So, you know, he, physically and mentally, he was quite well. And it was just him being Chautauqua and sometimes not wanting to do it on the day, but there are other days, many more days that he did. Jockey Tommy Berry joining us here on In the Gate. He's been the regular rider of Chautauqua throughout most of the horse's career, minus Mr. Berry's year in Hong Kong. So what was the argument that the connections made to try to overturn the ban? Oh, they just said he was in a good, you know, he's in, in fine fiddle. He was very healthy as well. And obviously, they thought they still had a hope of being able to get him to jump. If there was any 
danger on his well-being than he would have been in the paddock. But I guess it shows there was one trial there at Rose Hill where he'd missed the kick by 10 lengths and ran second and the horses that finished first, third and fourth around him had all won group ones in their following start. So it shows you how well he was going. Um, there was there was no doubt in the way of you know how well he was going or how he was feeling. He was in he was in top shape. It should be pointed out that Tommy Berry wound up finishing third in the Everest aboard the Godolphin-owned Osborne Bulls. That was a weird race where the pack was along the inside part of the track, but you were way out on the far side all by yourself. What did it feel like to finish third in such a big race? Yeah, it was it was an incredible feeling. Obviously, he wasn't he wasn't right in the market. He was one of the outsiders, so to for him to run as well as he did was a massive bonus. And I'd sort of spoken to James Cummings and the team at Godolphin prior to the race and said that we sort of went out and walked the track and saw that we thought, through our opinion, that the outside was uh, inferior ground. It was a lot better out there, so we decided to to go ahead with that plan and go to the outside fence and see if it would help our chances. And uh, I believe if I probably stayed back to the inside, he'd probably run six or seventh. But getting out to that better bit of bit of ground definitely helped him and and got him into third place, which was incredible for for everyone involved. Now, as exhilarating as that was, and it was wonderful to watch all of your social media posts afterwards. What did it mean to you that Chautauqua was not allowed to compete in that race? Yeah, it was quite tough to take. Uh, he actually led the field out on the day and looked super doing so. But, you know, I thought he was riding him back in his work and, and riding him in a couple of few of his jump outs and trials that he did jump out and go. I thought he, he was going as good or better than he ever has. So for, and it was, a, it was a, I think, a heavy nine on the day which he's, I think, almost unbeaten on a heavy track. So it was um, it was frustrating that we had a horse as well as him and and probably the best horse in the race by a margin not being able to compete. So that was pretty tough to take. Is there anything that we can learn, that horsemen can learn from what's happened with Chautauqua? Oh, I don't think so. I just think he's a... He's a very he's a very special individual. He's a very quirky animal, and he's been like that since day one, and and that worked in our favour for six years, and it, it didn't last last couple of years. But I, you know, every horse is different, and I think you just got to treat them all as equals. Now you're back in your native country after the year in Hong Kong, as we mentioned. We don't get quite as much information over here in the states as we wish we did. So, what are your prospects looking like for the Melbourne Cup, the race that stops a nation? Well, obviously, being away in Hong Kong for 12 months, I've only been back for probably three to four months max. So I haven't really got any any horses that have been riding leading into the Melbourne Cup. But there are a few horses there that are going to run Caulfield Cup Day and, and so on that I'm um, looking to, to pick up along the way. So we'll just wait till after the weekend and, and see what happens after that. Well, you know the saying about quirky individuals. When you're successful, you're eccentric. When you're not successful... There are less flattering adjectives to describe your quirks. We'll call Chautauqua eccentric. Tommy Berry, thank you so much for sharing a few minutes with us about him. My pleasure, anytime. Look forward to hopefully seeing you soon. Our thanks to Tommy Berry and Uriah St. Louis. You always remember fondly cultural events from when you were younger, when you came of age and life kicked into gear. For European trainers like John Gosden and Aidan O'Brien, the Breeders' Cup's been kind over the years. 
And sure enough, some of the biggest stars to race in Europe will once again be coming over here. Enable, Roaring Lion, Mendelssohn, and Thunder Snow, who last time at Churchill Downs was racked with fear. I know the Breeders' Cup races are worth a lot of money. Why else would the Euros come for the event? But with more and more big race days on their own side of the pond, would the Breeders' Cup become less relevant? The fun of the Breeders' Cup is to see the best take on the best, including a decent contingent from overseas. It will remain a challenge to recruit the best from Europe, so the event does not feel cut off at the knees. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.